fundamentally, I think the biggest risk of junk light is that it's, it's tricking us that we can be indoors and not have sunlight and function at anywhere near the level biologically as if we are outdoors in light. So it's a pseudo replacement for full spectrum light that with using blue light tricks our brain to keep secreting cortisol and keep us awake and alert without having the rest of the spectrum, especially again, that red and near infrared to power the, the energy production, help support in the energy production processes. So I look at it again, like a, an engine that, or a fire that's burning with more smoke and smoke being reactive oxygen species versus a fire that's burning clean, which I would liken to when we are functioning in full spectrum sunlight. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. So welcome to the Collective Insights podcast. I'm Dr. Dan Stickler. I'm the medical director here at the Neurohacker Collective. And I've got a really exciting show for you guys today. Um, I get to interview Matt Maruka. Matt is a research, most of you guys know Matt uh, that are listening in, I'm sure, but this is going to be a really fun interview. He's a researcher, entrepreneur, and educator in the fields of photobiology, mitochondria, and optimal human health, and the founder of Raw Optics. And this is a company known for producing the world's finest blue light blocking glasses, and we're going to get into what makes those really the, the go-to for blue light blocking. Matt also created the Light Diet. It's a diet that directly addresses the root of the modern chronic disease epidemic and mitochondrial dysfunction. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. Matt now spends most of his time traveling the world, studying and teaching about the relevance of light in human health cycles with a focus on reversing this situation, as well as integrating science with ancient Eastern wisdom. So welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm excited to dive into this. This is uh, this is a topic that I get a lot of questions about in my medical clients. Uh, they're always asking me, you know, kind of a lot of questions around like timing of using the blue light blocking glasses, uh, which ones are the best, and you know how much should we use these, and does it matter if we watch TV and all of that. So we'll get into all of that, but. I wanted to kind of dive in right at the start and really talk about, you know, what's behind you? What's your passion? What prompted you to create Raw Optics? Yeah, well, thank you for asking, Dr. Daniel. Um, what basically happened in my own life was just a series of challenges that led me to want to dig a little bit deeper. So I was having gut issues, allergies, headaches, and all sorts of just fairly debilitating chronic issues at a really young age. And, you know, between third grades so around eight years old and onward. And I came to accept that, you know, my genes control my destiny and I couldn't really do anything about this. And I listened to some of your, you know, amazing interviews like London Real, where you speak about epigenetics and it resonates with me so much because what I started to learn about was epigenetics when I came across the paleo diet in an, sort of an accident way, trying to actually clear up some acne that I was um, having as an adolescent teenager. And so I read this word epigenetics on Mark Sisson, you know, Mark's Daily Apple uh, Primal Blueprint blog. And I just completely had this light bulb go off like, oh my gosh, I can change my genes through my environment. And so at the time, I thought it was all about food. And I got really deep into all sorts of different food focused approaches to optimize health, which ultimately gave me a ton of improvement and further convinced me that this was possible. But I sort of hit some basically walls and obstacles along the journey where I, I felt like I plateaued. I couldn't really advance with just food alone, no matter how strict I went. I went basically carnivore, you know, seven years ago before it was cool, gaps diet, the whole thing. And I, no matter how strict I was, I found myself really struggling with these diets and I wasn't really noticing myself feeling any better like I had with the original shift to a paleo diet from a really refined food-based diet. And ultimately, I came across the, this whole body of research of circadian rhythms, mitochondria, 
photobiology, light, how it influences our body, and ultimately came to understand that you know mitochondria are the primary one of the primary mediators of epigenetics in our body because they're sort of the direct link between our environment, energy production, and then mitochondria regulate genetic expression because the energy required to express the genes is generated by the mitochondria. So this was fascinating. And when I learned just how important light is for regulating the basic things like our circadian rhythm, which regulates mitochondrial repair, you know, via, for example, melatonin production and so on, it just started to click that this is so much deeper than just food and things like this, which are also, again, really important, but that there's this whole other world that's hardly explored to date. And ultimately, it led me much further towards a path of, you know, almost like a spiritual quest, because once I learned that there's so much going on in our body in regards to light and electricity and bioelectromagnetism that's been researched for decades, it sort of started to open up the path towards a deeper understanding of these ancient, you know, Eastern principles of whether it's yoga or meditation or kundalini or all these different things that that have been spoken about and have been dismissed as woo-woo despite wondrous healings and all sorts of amazing things happening over the last few thousands of years with those practices. So that's sort of my background. And I want to share this information with the world as much as I can. I love that. And you're, you're speaking my language with the, uh, the epigenetics and the uh, Eastern practices. Uh, that's something we've been really delving into quite a bit. Now, I am curious um, because I, I teach epigenetics and I have not really dug into the, any studies on the effects of light on epigenetic expression. Um, have you found any literature on that? Is anybody doing that research right now? To be honest, there's not, it doesn't seem like, you know, again, based on my research that there is a ton directly showing how light affects um, genetic expression. There's, there are, you know, bits and pieces here and there. Um, there's a really amazing textbook called Light Shaping Life, Biophotons in Biology and Medicine, which is not quite exactly directed towards epigenetics, but it's more generally focused on how light is playing a very fundamental role in things like mitosis uh, and, and other very fundamental cellular processes, which henceforth were not, it wasn't very well understood the mechanisms of these things. And it turns out that according to the research, which was done pretty thoroughly, that cells always pulse a little bit of extreme low frequency ultraviolet light before they're dividing. So ultimately that's, this is sort of an example of light functioning inside of the body. There's a lot of evidence, you know, indicating that light, for example, blue light at night can disrupt melatonin production. And that, of course, there's a good amount of literature on melatonin disruption or uh, things like this, things of this nature being harmful to the, to the body because, well, melatonin is, you know, scavenging, damaging free radicals. And so if we don't have as much melatonin, of course, the mitochondria can't function at their highest level. And then, of course, there's the effects of the circadian rhythm on, or I should say sunlight and sunrise and early, you know, morning sunlight and afternoon sunlight, which you may be familiar, you might even be friends with Dr. Daniel Huberman from um, Stanford. Yeah. He's been talking a lot, you know, lately about circadian rhythms and the effects of light. So ultimately, even though the literature isn't as strong as I'd like it to be, you know, one day I'd like to maybe create a foundation through raw optics and really dive into the research on light. There are there's a lot of sort of pieces that can be tied together to understand that, you know, light so profoundly in, impacts so many aspects of the biology of biochemistry that ultimately affect things like the mitochondria, affect things like sleep, which have been shown, you know, to have effects on our genetic expression and so on and uh, cellular repair and so on. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, when you look at it, you can look at the fact that, you know, we do know epigenetics disruptions uh, or impacts from uh, circadian disruptions, from uh, sleep disruptions, from even melatonin secretion or non-secretion. And these are all things that we, we know have an impact on gene expression. So, you know, we've got the indirect effect for sure, but yeah, it'd be great to uh, start seeing some, um, some studies that look at the direct effect of such as, like blue light exposure and, and UV exposure and just see what kind of uh, what kind of results are actually taking place there because it's, uh, 
mean, it's definitely an impact on the system. I see it in, in the responses from clients that actually go through this. So uh, can you give, give us kind of a, uh, let's, let's assume that we have listeners that aren't real familiar with the term photobiology. Can you, can you give us a high level overview of what that means? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so just to be clear as well, I'm not a PhD or, you know, when, when researcher is in my um, bio, it's more like citizen scientist sort of, you know, researcher who looks up and sees what's happening. Like you said, you know, you do, you're reading hours a day on um, PubMed and things like that. That's something that I'm constantly, you know, digging into the different research on light and so on. But uh, basically photobiology is the study of how light affects biology. So photo is a Greek word meaning light, same root as photography. And biology is obviously life. So photobiology is just simply the study of how light affects life. And there are many, many facets to it. You know, some people are studying red and infrared light. Some people are studying ultraviolet light. Some people are studying blue light. Some people are studying the whole spectrum of light. Um, so there are you know, there's lots of different facets of it and lots of different researchers active today, uh, as well as over the last 100 years. But that's just basically what photobiology is. Yeah, you know, something you said right there at the beginning of that was, um, you know, you're kind of a citizen scientist. And, you know, I, I have a great deal of respect for the, the self-taught people. Um, one of the advantages of that is that you you can look at things from a different perspective than the people who have have established, uh, you know, personal deep knowledge through through education and training that has been delivered to them, not that they've done on their own. And it can sometimes bias you. In fact, you know, we're we're big fans of being deep generalists. So maintaining a, a wide spectrum of knowledge while still having deep knowledge in an area and you know, as soon as you become an expert, you basically have limited yourself. Uh, it means you're done learning and that you know everything. And, uh, and that, that is death to me for, for the, uh, the growth of, of a scientific and questioning mind. So I have a great deal of respect for people that go through that. I mean, what I do now uh, has very little to do with what I learned in medical school. And most of it was self-taught myself. So yeah, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, again, I, I disclaim to people that, you know, as as not being formally trained in, for example, you know, medicine or things like that, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. But I, I, again, I appreciate you shedding some light on that, because I do think people have often handed away our power to someone with a bunch of letters after their name, who often are very intelligent people. Um, but ultimately, there are many who just like you kind of uh, said and alluded to that, that really just become biased. And I've met many, many PhDs, uh, especially young PhDs who, who think they know everything just because they graduated um, college, you know, and, and did their, you know, their thesis and everything. And they're not very open-minded to things, even like science that's very well established, like blue light disrupting circadian rhythms and the benefits of, for example, blue light blocking glasses or things like that. So it is, it is cool for people to know, I think, that people can go out and research and make their own decisions um, and, and understand what's happening. Yeah, and to me, they, they actually make, um, they make better clinicians in a sense because they have not been so entrenched into one area where they're hearing everything from one field. Um, people like you and I are more of complexity thinkers where we can we can have knowledge in other areas and say, how does this relate to what's going on in there? Not, okay, this is, this is the, the narrow focus we have because the human system works in that way with interactions among all different uh, inputs into it. So uh, kudos to you on that one. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about the term junk light and how, how is that an impactful um, spectrum for us? Yeah, so it's super interesting to me. I don't know who came up with the term junk light, but it, yeah, me does, either. <laughs> it does a decent job. It's not that old. I mean, some someone in the biohacker health communities threw it out and it sort of caught fire. Um, it's not my favorite term. I, I more just refer to, you know, artificial light or, or, you know, basically natural light, which is full spectrum sunlight versus artificial or man-made light or electric lighting, which is, yeah, you know, artificially produced or produced by man. 
Um, and by its nature, at present, most electric lighting is produced with a different, significantly different spectrum from that of the sun, just because of the, you know, challenges of recreating the solar spectrum, as well as the, you know, um, lack of awareness of potential benefits of doing so. But so I typically start more with the focus on why sunlight is so essential from my understanding and research for the body and, and as well as my own experience. And basically, you know, if we look at human evolution, even though life based on, you know, some really advanced theories that I ascribe to myself, life began at these alkaline hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. Um, you may have read Dr. Nick Lane's work, like, uh, for example, uh, I actually forget the name of, it's called The Vital Question was the book where he kind of goes through these theories and he's sort of the main guy researching, you know, how life began. But anyway, life did be begin supposedly at the bottom of the oceans in these vents with lots of infrared light energy, as well as all sorts of, you know, chemical reactions going on. But ultimately life moved towards the surface of the ocean and, and then onto land, different pieces of life did, and began to utilize sunlight energy as a essentially what we could call free energy source to drive evolution. So while life is both catalyzing reactions between, for example, carbon and hydrogen at the early stages, um, and that's sort of how it's you know generating energy and it's this sort of self-perpetuating reaction, ultimately energy is the sort of the currency of life. And so when we're exposed to this sunlight energy, it, it sort of makes almost intuitive sense that life would, you know, assimilate this light and use it to sort of further its its ends, so to speak, and, and advance and grow and develop. You know, we still obviously use energy for everything we do. And that's why we have these mitochondria that, that produce our energy. So anyway, sunlight allowed for a very high level of biological evolution. You know, if, if the sun weren't shining on earth, first of all, it's, it's de debatable whether life would have ever existed. But Ultimately, we can look today at living organisms and see that definitively we utilize so many different wavelengths of light that's contained in the solar spectrum. So rather than just looking at the theory of evolution and so on, you can actually see, you know, plants, animals, and so on. We have all of these chromophores in our body that are these basically molecules and pigments and all sorts of things that absorb light. And, and it seems to be the case that almost every single biomolecule just like most atoms and you know pretty much all atoms in nature absorb and re-emit certain spectra of light. And in the same way, the molecules that are made from those atoms and the biomolecules from those molecules in our bodies absorb and re-emit certain spectra. So all that's to say, my, my sort of understanding and, and belief at this point based on the research I've done is that every single biomolecule in the body is actually sort of tuned in a sense to a certain wavelength of light coming from the sun and that our biology has basically figured out how to utilize the tremendous number of different wavelengths of light just in the narrow band of solar light that does reach Earth. But there's still tons of different wavelengths. We figured out how to use this light to carry out and enhance a lot of different processes. So for example, ones that are very commonly known and very well researched today are is the interaction of red light with cytochrome C oxidase in our mitochondria. Like It's been shown very clearly that red light improves mitochondrial production of energy and ATP and, and increases its efficiency and so on and so forth. So this is just one example of where light from the sun is being utilized by biological systems, the, the mitochondria specifically, to really improve energy production. And so when people say, let's do some red light therapy and improve our mitochondrial function, you know, for me, it's, it's sort of like a given that in nature, we would have this benefit that we've evolved with from the sun constantly optimizing our mitochondrial function. But today, now we don't really have it because we've all moved to this indoor technology-based lifestyle where we're really deficient in red and near-infrared light. So that's just one example. We can look at, you know, obviously plants directly photosynthesize and create, you know, sugar from sunlight and carbon dioxide and so on. And, um, you know, plants are obviously taking advantage of sunlight. There's other research that's very fascinating that I'm I'm actively diving into more and more, which is this idea that humans actually are able to photosynthesize to a certain extent. Um, ben Greenfield actually turned me on to this book called Melanin, the Master Molecule by a guy out of Mexico City, uh, a doctor down there, basically theorizing that utilizing 
sunlight and melanin, we split water and basically generate a ton of free energy in the form of electrons from the water molecules that are split. And this is a bit more, I'd say, kind of edgy science out there. But there's a lot of, of both more forward-thinking science and more established research that just continued, continues to compile, showing that, wow, we are really these beings of, of light. And so to go to the question of junk light, then, it, as a being that's evolved with this full spectrum of light that powers a huge variety of different reactions in our biochemistry, including those as foundational as energy production, when we remove ourselves from that exposure to that light, you know, throughout the year, whether it's winter, there's still good sunlight coming through in the winter, even on a cloudy day, there's still a good amount of light, uh, even if it's 30% of what's normal on a bright blue sky day, or in the summer when there is a lot more light, you know, we're getting this, this benefit throughout the year. But we've moved totally into an indoor lifestyle where we're behind walls, windows, and so on. And these basically block, especially windows, I mean, walls block light completely, but windows, even though they let some light in and we, we have to use windows because if you put people in a dark room, it would be like solitary and confinement. People would get tired and fall asleep and not be able to function. So just that alone you know, kind of shows light's very important. We put these holes in our walls so that we can get light in to stay awake and feel good. And any room that's only artificially lit is typically a very stressful and not happy place to be. Like the, it's like a dungeon, um, like a courtroom or like a, a big uh, study hall for students in a university, you know, that it's underground. These are just not fun places to be. So we move inside and we basically deprive ourselves of these wavelengths again, many of which are studied, many of which are, have, have yet to be studied that affect our body in so many different ways. And the body sort of starts to devolve and function at a lower level. And this is where I, I, I would tie this to epigenetics because what happens when we're depriving ourselves of the near, you know, the red and near infrared light that optimizes mitochondrial function and optimizes the structure of our water, of the water in our cells, the mitochondria will be, in, as a result of producing energy less efficiently, there's some evidence to show that mitochondria will be producing more free radicals in these cases, so more reactive oxygen species in this type of situation. Um, again, largely due to the lack of red and near infrared light and the increase typically in blue light um, exposure in these situations. There's you know, some published data indicating that blue light exposure increases reactive oxygen species production, specifically isolated blue light. And so what this does, you know, and this is getting a bit scientific, but that's causing mutations in mitochondrial DNA, which is the work, you know, the study of Dr. Douglas Wallace, who's huge epigenetics and mitochondrial researcher out of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Basically, this, this issue that's happening is causing our, it's basically accelerating the process of aging by mutating mitochondrial DNA. And melatonin is supposed to scavenge and solve that problem of us being indoors. But what happens is we're, block, we're blocking the natural production of melatonin by exposing ourselves to more blue light, not just during the day, but at night. And then we are not repairing the damage that we've done throughout the day as a result of both normal energy production and hindered ener energy production when we're indoors. And so, you know, again, that's a bit scientific and long-winded, but ultimately it's, it's this fundamentally, I think the biggest risk of junk light is that it's, it's tricking us that we can be indoors and not have sunlight and function at anywhere near the level biologically as if we are outdoors in light. So it's a pseudo replacement for full spectrum light that with using blue light tricks our brain to keep secreting cortisol and keep us awake and alert without having the rest of the spectrum, especially again, that red and near infrared to power the, the energy production, help support in the energy production processes. So I look at it again, like a, an engine that, or a fire that's burning with more smoke and smoke being reactive oxygen species versus a fire that's burning clean, which I would liken to when we're functioning in full spectrum sunlight. So I hope that kind of makes sense and answers the question. This, this oh, artificial yeah. light can be really problematic for our body. And you know, it brings up a lot of um, questions from, there's a lot, a lot in that statement that, that I wanna jump back to. Um, a lot of people will ask me specifically, they'll say, you know, what, what full spectrum light is, have I found to be the best? And is there one that can truly replicate the spectrum of natural light? Yeah, so that is something that I cannot give a very good answer to uh, at present. The, I would say that the best source is absolutely unequivocally sunlight. 
Um, there are certain bulbs that I've come across, like fluorescent bulbs and so on, that were utilized by a guy named John Ott, who wrote an amazing book called Health and Light. He was researching, uh, or he was actually doing time-lapse photography for Walt Disney and was using light to change the movement of flowers and using moisture contents in the air to cause them to stand up straight and basically then wilt, depending on the amount of moisture in the air. And, and he used the light to make plants turn. And by doing this over a period of days, he could make plants appear like they were dancing up and down and right and left. And he also started to notice these effects on the plants of just being exposed to light at night. It would affect the certain, like the morning glory, for example, wouldn't open up in the morning uh, as it was supposed to with the exposure to light at night. So started studying that and all sorts of other things along this line. But he did come across some full spectrum fluorescent bulbs, which I haven't been able to actually source um, effectively. But that's stuff we are looking into with raw optics as more full spectrum healthy light sources. What people can do is look at, there's a company called Sperti, S-P-E-R-T-I, that makes both UVA and UVA UVB lamps. So for tanning and for vitamin D exposure or production, I should say. And so they have very clear, you know, recommendations on dosage and not overdosing because that's a huge issue with ultraviolet is that if overdosed and uh, in certain contexts for people with different, you know, skin tones, it can be very problematic. And this is where people can create issues for themselves um, with excess exposure. But I would say Spurdy is probably the best place for people to start. And when I, when I talk about lighting for people's homes, I usually recommend using just natural daylight during the day. And I recommend, uh, you know, at night getting some red light bulbs, uh, for, for example, something you could find on Amazon even, or red light bulbs. And again, that's another product where we're looking at developing, we are developing actively with raw is um, more healthy full spectrum and not full spectrum, but night spectrum lighting for people. Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you about the, the natural light. I, you know, I just, I don't think there is a true replication of full spectrum sunlight. And, you know, I do recommend people get outside. I mean, even, even in a house with windows, the windows are going to filter some of that, that spectrum um, from what's coming out. So I do try to get them to spend as much time as possible outside. Now, you did mention um, the infrared lights and the, the health benefits of those from a mitochondrial standpoint. A common question I get from clients is, you know, how deep, we know red light penetrates pretty deeply into the skin, but how deep does it actually go? I mean, it, where, where does that benefit cease? How deep down? Yeah, so with the penetration of light, there's actually an amazing chart that I'd like to up. Uh, pull up and maybe you guys could put it in the show notes. But the penetration of infrared light is something like 30 centimeters into the skin. So it, it goes basically through us. It's, um, it's something that, you know, most likely because it's so integral to how water you know, to the function of water in living systems, it's likely for that reason that life didn't develop any mechanisms or systems by which to block the absorption of infrared light. Um, in other words, you know, if, if you're, I imagine you're familiar with Dr. Gerald Pollack, maybe you even interviewed with him or, you know, know him personally, but he, he studies um, how water works at a sort of deeper level than has been typically studied. And he wrote this amazing book called The Fourth Phase of Water, where, as well as a few others like cells, gels, and the engines of life and so on. And basically he talks about how and, and research is really how water in cells and water in life is distinctly different from water in a glass. And that when water is placed against a hydrophilic, which is like a water loving surface, it can structure in such a way where it becomes H3O2, where basically the water becomes a bunch of OH negative, you know, ions or are pieces of water. I'm not sure the correct chem chemistry term for OH minus, but they, they create a liquid crystalline lattice that builds. And basically the water becomes very, uh, it becomes a conductor of electricity. They've actually stuck mini electrodes into this structured water into the, what they call exclusion zone, which is the structured water. And then into this 
the rest of the water, which they would call like the bulk water. And they've been able to basically draw out enough current to light up a mini light bulb. So basically implying that water can function as, as a battery. And the research is very, very compelling. Um, they've done a lot to try to sort of disprove it as any really, you know, talented scientist would. And it seems to just hold up tests. So my, my thinking on this, and again, there, I'd love, like you said, in the beginning of the conversation, to have some real, real solid data that links all of this together. So it isn't just conjecture about, you know, this makes sense and that makes sense. You put these two together and it also kind of makes sense. Um, and even if it does make a lot of sense. So ultimately, I do believe that because of the way that infrared light is what, what he found to impact water and create this structured water where it becomes sort of like a battery, that's infrared light, which is doing this. Ultraviolet also plays a role as well once the water is structured. But so this infrared light goes very deep and basically through us and is affecting the structure of water in every cell. So you know, that's that's one, one big way that the infrared light, for example, like a clear light sauna or a sauna space can have a huge benefit. Obviously, there's the heat, there are the heat shock proteins, which you know, when activated have all sorts of other beneficial effects for the body. I've seen a lot of, uh, of just anecdotal benefits of my clients that have uh, gotten the red, red light saunas that they, they start using regularly that had a lot of health improvements across the board. Um, but you mentioned something with the uh, circadian, you know, how important the circadian rhythm is in life. I mean, all of life is really um, tuned in to, to circadian rhythms, but we also have the ultradian rhythms that are going on. I mean, the, we've disrupted most of these because of the artificial light that we have. And how much of an impact do you think our um, overriding of circadian rhythms is, has created health problems for us in society? I think it's really, really massive, to be honest. Um, you know, having come from growing up my whole life and having sleep problems, and I didn't even know I had sleep problems because I had nothing to measure against. I would just lay in bed and have a hard time falling asleep. And looking back, that was a, a very big symptom of, of, my, um, of my body having all these other issues that I wasn't even aware of was, was an issue. But so, you know, circadian rhythms are so foundational to life i think of them like a beat in a song like the tempo that keeps things moving and if that tempo were off in for example an orchestra with you know for example maybe a couple dozen different violinists and musicians of all different types it would become problematic for everyone playing you know it would start to they would all say well you know i was trying to keep up with the regular tempo but then i heard the tempo change and so i was trying to do this differently. Ultimately, when it comes to an organism with, you know, 100,000 biochemical reactions happening per cell per second, just as an estimate, you know, it, it, it could be a lot more profound on our biology in ways that we, again, probably don't even fully understand. But like, the good thing about circadian rhythm disruption is that there is a lot that has been researched and is understood by, for example, people like Dr. Sachin Panda out of or I should say, uh, yeah, Sachin Panda out of the Salk Institute in San Diego. And he has a couple of really great TED Talks for people who want to look into circadian rhythms more. But ultimately, what they have found in their studies is that when, you, when they feed an animal, and in their case, it, they were feeding nocturnal animals with you know, food sources that were considered suboptimal for those animals, and then food sources that were considered healthier, so to speak. And basically, the animals that were eating this basically more toxic food at the time of day when the animals were more metabolically active, they actually had better health outcomes than those who were consuming healthier foods, what are, would be considered healthier, cleaner foods at a time of day when they were less metabolically active. So transferring this over to humans, basically their, their sort of conclusions or uh, theses were that you know, if you're a human being and you're drinking a bottle of Coca-Cola at, for example, 12 noon and the body is most metabolically active and the metabolism is able to burn through these things, it could be the case that that would actually be less bad for the body than consuming something that one might consider to be healthful, whether it's a salad or a steak at 10 o'clock at night when the body is 
supposed to be getting into sleep and repair mode, which is so foundational. You know, I heard you speak about if you were to have clients who, or, or you know, a group of people who said they don't sleep even more than six hours a night, you might not even get started working with them because I mean that's that's such a foundational issue, and so that's all to say that the basic issue with circadian rhythm disruption is the fact that it's disrupting our sleep, which is the most vital time for us to repair. So it's pretty simple for, you know, to keep it really simple for someone who doesn't have the deep scientific understanding. It's basically when we get this blue light exposure at night, it's basically sending a signal through this um, really interesting cell that they found in the retina only in the last couple of decades called retinal ganglion cells. It's in addition to the rods and the cones, which we use for vision. And these retinal ganglion cells have this pigment in them that specifically absorbs blue light wavelengths and nothing else. And it also doesn't communicate with our visual centers. It communicates with our hypothalamus, which is sort of the master regulator of our body's metabolism. And so they basically were able to infer based on the data and then looking deeper into all of this, that this cell, the retinal ganglion cells and the pigment in it, melanopsin, is this master controller of our body circadian rhythm because it's speaking right with the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain, which is the master timekeeper of the body. And basically we get this blue light in and in the morning, it's like, I think of it like an on switch, you turn the light, a light bulb on, you press the on switch and everything's on. And as long as we keep that blue light stimulus throughout the day, we're going to stay awake. And that's part of why being out in the sun is, is beneficial. It keeps us awake, alert. It keeps our hormone production and our circadian rhythm in sync. And then as soon as the sun would go down, and the color temperature of the, the sun and the sky would change significantly, which is very hard to avoid if you're an, uh, an animal that lives outdoors, unless you are sequestered in a cave or you're in a place in the Arctic or Antarctic circle where there's no light for periods of the year. We get this circadian stimulus and the brain starts to make melatonin, you know, a few hours after this period. And then melatonin allows our body to really repair at, on, on a huge level. It's a master antioxidant in many ways, an anti-aging and even anti-cancer molecule based on some of the data. So just by having this blue light, which is likened to that, the on switch in my example, after the sun goes down, it's basically throwing off that simple rhythm that's not just controlling sleep, but it's also controlling metabolic activity. It's controlling the secretion of key hormones and neurotransmitters, especially in the morning when we are supposed to be getting the natural light stimulus of the sun. So ultimately, it, it's, I think, hard to really quantify how much uh, circadian rhythm disruption can affect people. But I think the things people can relate to on, it, on an intuitive and immediate basis are you'll feel, you know, have more trouble falling asleep. People will sleep less well, wake up feeling less rested, and have less energy throughout the day, have more brain fog, less productivity. Um, less energy again. And ultimately, this, I think, consistently over time is a foundation for development of chronic metabolic diseases, whether it's weight gain because the cells aren't functioning as optimally and the body feels like it just constantly needs to take in more and more and more sugar and carbohydrates. Or, you know, for some people, it might manifest as, for example, depression or anxiety because they're living in such a stressed state, they're so drained. So, yeah, to, to, to the question, circadian rhythm disruption has a, a very broad variety of effects, and many of which have been studied and, and pr probably many more of which have yet to be thoroughly, you know, clarified from the research. And to, to expand on what you're, you're talking about there, one of the, um, one of the things that we teach with our students in, the, in, in teaching them epigenetics, um, the sleep section especially, Everybody focuses on the uh, the suprachiasmic nucleus, the this master clock of the body, and they're they're so focused on the sleep wake cycle of that, and don't realize typically that we have metabolic clocks in just about every organ system in our body that are tuned to the suprachiasmic nucleus. Uh, there there are clocks in our muscle, there are clocks in our heart, there are clocks in the liver. Um, that in the lymphatic system, all of these clocks are set to circadian rhythm and they're set to be active and turned down at different times of the day. And this is, this is one of the things that you're talking about here with, with the timing on eating. Um, now I, I will say you at least said it's less bad, uh, with the Cokes, but you know, for me, 
um, I just, you know, that kind of, uh, that kind of an intake of a bionutrient is probably uh, one of the more impactful uh, negative impactors of the, of the body. And um, there, there are though the, the needs to focus on the, the circadian as well as the ultradian rhythms. So the ultradian rhythms are, these are rhythms that occur multiple times, multiple cycles during the, during the 24 hour period, whereas the circadian is a, is a 24 hour period clock. But that master clock is what everybody uses to set their, all these other organ system clocks use to set their timing on the day. And this is why we see such disruptions with people doing uh, night work, people that are, you know, playing the video games late at night and, um, and they have just a huge impact on, um, on our health. And, you know, that kind of segues nicely into my next question, which is, you know, I was shocked when I was reading the statistics on the amount of screen time that increased in 2020. Um, and, and not just in the teenagers, but across all age groups in the under 10 year olds in the over 60 year olds. I mean, the, the amount of screen time has gone up dramatically. I mean, what, what do you think is going to be happening with, with this? I mean, are we going to start to see the impacts in the short term or is it going to be more of a long-term impact on health? Yeah, that's a, it's an amazing question and it can, it can be a little bit, um, it can be a little scary almost, or at least make me a little bit concerned about like my generation, you know, because people have been on devices since really, really young ages. And, you know, looking at this sort of bigger picture of how, you know, at a, at a simple level, blue light can affect mitochondrial function, increase free radical production, in, you know, decrease mitochondrial efficiency and increase um, ultimately the onset potentially of mitochondrial related metabolic diseases, which again, Dr. Douglas Wallace, who I mentioned earlier on, has found that basically every single modern chronic metabolic disease or chronic illness is related to mitochondrial dysfunction at some level, whether it's Alzheimer's, diabetes, cancer, depression, dementia, you know, anxiety, and so on. And so I think that ultimately with what we're doing with our light environment, disrupting circadian rhythms and a uh, tremendous lack of natural, you know, solar exposure and time outside, you know, without sunglasses or without tons of sunscreens, chemical sunscreens and, and so on. I think we're probably going to see an increase in the incidence of all of these mitochondrial diseases in, you know, all of these age groups. Uh, including really, really young kids and with mothers utilizing so much screen time, probably I think we'll see the incidence of this in young newborns as well, um, sadly. And, you know, again, not to say that light and blue light and lack of sunlight is the only contributing factor to mitochondrial disease, because of course it's not. There are so many toxins and, you know, malnutrition and so many other things that are present in our environment, but, but light is seeming more and more to be a very dominant factor, especially with its, again, relations to energy production, circadian rhythm function, and so on. So yeah, it's, it's a little disappointing to say, more than disappointing, but I think as, as long as we continue this direction, we'll probably see more increases in these issues. And I, I, I think I saw on the, on your wall behind you, there was a, um, a Buddha. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're, I would assume you're interested in things like meditation and these practices of, you know, Eastern, Eastern wisdom, For sure. correct me if I'm wrong, but um, so there's, you know, I've been also diving really deep into the work of Dr. Joe Dispenza and people like him, you know, Bruce Lipton and so on, and really trying to understand the science that people like him are, are putting behind, you know, what, what science is he pulling from to explain this meditation work in a really scientific manner. And it is fascinating to see how much people can sort of overcome the limits of our environment just by having positive beliefs. I mean, whether they eat a poor diet or do other things that are not good, like getting artificial light at night, disrupting our biochemistry and circadian biology, people can, I think, overcome a lot of these things with really, really positive mindsets and being full of love and life. But I do really wonder, and, and again, there's not much, you know, sig I would say significant and data that could be really relied upon 
in the literature on this, but I really do wonder how much, like at what point can we use, you know, to what point can we use mindset work and meditation and so on to overcome these issues? Um, and where does it, where does it end? Like, where is it just simply, you know, you're eating, whether you're eating a poor diet, you're lacking certain uh, nutrition, or you are chronically be, being disrupted, um, you know, the circadian rhythm is chronically being disrupted by artificial light. You know, where, like, what is the limit on, on the mental work? And I would hope it goes really far, but ultimately I think as a biological organism that's largely governed by light, I think we have to really address this issue of our relationship with how we, how we understand and our relation, our relationship to light and, and how important it is. You know, we're all looking at food and, and supplementation, which are again, essential, but very few people are looking at light. And yet ultimately all of our food breaks down to light energy in, in a way, because light is what's powering you know, the production of that food in the first place. And so we, we, we use this in our lives, but we don't really look at how light at a much higher level could affect our biology. So again, I hope that we start making improvements in this, in this sense for all of humanity and especially for kids and younger generations. Yeah. You know, the, the mitochondrial health is becoming more front and center in especially in the aging community. And one of the concerns has always been that, you know, because of the way mitochondria divide and, and create new monoclonal lines of, you know, the, the least damaged or hopefully the least damaged mitochondria. Uh, one of the concerns has always been that, you know, we're, we're in a situation where the reversal uh, is not quite that easy. Uh, so, you know, people will shift their health and, and, and start leading a more uh, health-based lifestyle and, and they're dealing with, with some less than optimal mitochondria. Uh, have you done any work with, uh, with any of the peptides on mitochondrial rejuvenations or? Yeah, I actually have not. That's not something I've look, looked into much at all. So I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be able to speak intelligently on it, but I have seen, you know, among just friends and biohackers who experiment with things like this, I've heard of really, really amazing results of people utilizing peptides. So I do think it's fascinating. Um, my, my, you know, my only immediate question, and again, coming from a place of not having a thorough knowledge on the subject would be, you know, knowing, or at least understanding as I feel I do, that that life is governed by an energy field, that our bodies are ultimately governed by a field of energy, which has been studied by people like Robert O. Becker and the Body Electric and, and other researchers, like the textbook I mentioned earlier about light called Light Shaping Life, Biophotons and Biology and Medicine. I, I, I just wonder, you know, is, is using things like peptides a a really sustainable long-term solution for people, or does that have to be coupled with, you know, both utilizing that to get people, especially those who are compromised in certain ways, such that they can't necessarily practice meditation, or they maybe can't even get out into the sun, or they can't maybe do healthy exercise. But where's where, um, if any, is there a line where people have to, on top of peptides, utilize lifestyle and environmental changes to ultimately change the underlying biochemistry and energy that is ultimately, you know, failing and resulting in that deficiency or issue in the first place. Again, maybe it's, um, you know, maybe you can enlighten me there on, on that one, but. Well, it's interesting because in the, in the longevity world, I mean, we use, we use quite a bit of mitochondrial peptides. I mean, there's, uh, the MOT SC, there's the human and, uh, one that I really like is SS 31, but, um, it, it was taken away from the compounding pharmacies because of a patent issue on a, company that patented it and going to be selling it for a very high price. Um, but, you know, some of the newer research is actually looking at uh, replacing mitochondria in the cells, uh, ways to deliver uh, youthful mitochondria to, um, to an aged body uh, where, mm -hmm. you know, the mitochondria is, is pretty cool because you can transplant mitochondria without a problem. They're doing that with, uh, with some of the mitochondrial diseases that mothers carry and they're replacing the mitochondria in the, in the eggs, essentially replacing the egg and putting a mother, the mother's DNA into the egg of a healthy egg with good, healthy mitochondria. 
and um, completely obliterating the risk of uh, the mitochondrial disease that she would normally pass on. But it's exciting to, to actually see that. But the thing is, I mean, people, I don't think people should be candidates for that that have not established that baseline of health because you're, yeah, you're getting new mitochondria, but you're just going to accelerate the process of uh, aging them again. So uh, I think if that, that option does come up, it's, it should be uh, based on you know, the, the need and the, uh, the focus of the person to, to do it because you know, aging is not a magic pill that's going to do it. You've got to have the full, full complement of it. Uh, now, before we get too far into this, I want to talk a little bit about blue light and blue light blocking glasses. So uh, for the listeners out there, can, can you explain, because, you know, people are now, you hear people talk about in the biohacker world and they're, they're all about how awful blue light is, but I try to explain to my clients, you know, there's, there's the good, it's the timing issue. It's not that the blue light is bad for you. So don't, yeah. don't wear your blue light blockers all day long. For people who are sitting, for example, on a screen all day or in an office building where they're not exposed to natural full spectrum sunlight, and therefore they need ultimately some level of protection because the key thing based on my research is that when they don't have the presence of that near infrared light, the blue light that is coming off of these light sources becomes fairly problematic for the cells in the eye and even the body's, you know, the body's rhythm is disrupted by a stagnant amount of blue light throughout the day. So, so again, basically simple way to put it is blue balanced by the sun with red and near infrared is you know, much more okay and actually beneficial to the body, but blue light when highly you know, isolated and in high, uh, ratios and concentrations that, you know, even greater than what's found in the sun, you know, and this is what happens in an office and LEDs and fluorescent lights, then I believe it's prudent to block the blue. And what people experience when they wear these glasses, this is the amazing thing is you just feel a little bit more relaxed, just calms things down a little bit. And if you're in a place like a school or an office building with really abrasive fluorescent lighting, it's easier to just be a little bit more chill. Um, because, you know, the blue is stimulating that stress response. And uh, of course, a bit is good. So I always recommend people get outside and get some natural sunlight in the morning if they have to work in an office all day and even take sun breaks instead of like people go out and take smoke breaks that are just go out and take a sun break and not smoke a cigarette, um, of course. And so those are what the day lenses are for, sort of, you know, use cases like that. And then the night lenses ultimately block not just all the blue, the day lenses are blocking about 95% of the blue light. The night lenses block 100% of the blue light and then about 80% of green light as well. And this is because there is limited evidence that green light is more impactful on the body's circadian rhythm than, for example, the warmer colors, those of fire, which would be the red, the orange, and the yellow color wavelengths. And so we block the blue and the green at night because not only is there some evidence showing that green, again, can affect the circadian system, but ultimately from having tested these myself and now with tens of thousands of customers and, and people who I know very closely who use these, people anecdotally notice that they get more tired and sleep better and more easily when they use these night lenses after the sun goes down. Because what it basically is doing is cutting out everything except, again, the reds, oranges, and yellows, the colors of fire, which we would have naturally evolved with at night when we would have fires and stand around the bonfire and so on. So that that's, the, those are the two different lenses that we offer. And ultimately back to the question just about, you know, blue light in general and why it's important to block it. I think we've, we've addressed that pretty thoroughly throughout this episode. So it's just great that people have this option now to put these glasses on. And um, the reason I started this company raw optics is because when I was wearing these glasses in the beginning, there were no options that basically blocked these correct spectra of light. You know, the, the a, a meaningful amount of blue light and a meaningful amount of blue and green light, for example, where they also had an attractive high quality frame style. So there were some that had high quality, you know, good looking frames, but they're all doing clear lenses because they're catering to a really mass market and they're not interested in doing the hard work which is educating people about the importance of a colored lens 
in order to have meaningful blue light protection to really see results and feel results, as opposed to just a placebo, which also is a result in a sense, but it's not the real result that we want people to get based on the evidence available. And so on the other hand, there were glasses that did block the right spectrum, spectra of light. So the, you know, they're, they're these red lenses or orange lenses. But the issue with these was that typically there were very, very, there are more biohacker companies or even just Amazon safety goggle type things that were really, really low quality lenses and frames, especially that just didn't feel good on the face. And I was in high school at this time. So I didn't really want to wear this product out to be around, you know, friends and girls and in and, and public. Um, and so ultimately it was just inevitable that I had to create something for myself that I wanted to use. And since then, we've just constantly refined and evolved and, you know, linked up with some of the best frame and lens manufacturers in the world and experts on developing lenses and utilizing pigments and lenses to achieve different results for physiology. And in our case, it's again, the, the protection uh, from blue light to you know, reduce oxidative stress in the mitochondria and improve uh, and, and reduce circadian rhythm disruption, improve natural melatonin production, sleep quality, and Ultimately, though, just make people feel better. Like that's really what the core is of this for me, and give people that option to be protected. And so that's sort of the the story of how we got here and why you know our products to me are the best available on the market today. And one other thing I wanted to share is that when people use these glasses, again, this is anecdotal evidence, so I, I'd love to have clinical studies at some point, but. People typically say like, I can't, I literally can't imagine my life without these. That's the number one comment because you look at a TV screen and you take the glasses off and you're like, whoa, how did I ever look at a TV at night and not have these glasses on? Or like you put on the glasses if you're driving, I don't recommend using the night lenses for driving because they block too much light and wouldn't be safe. But the day, the daytime lenses can be used for driving at night and they still provide way more blue light protection than if you didn't have them on, um, just not as much or they're just not quite as you know, make you tired, make you fall asleep as the night lenses, but people can drive with these. And if you, if you take them off while you're driving, getting blasted by the new bright white led headlights, people are like, Oh my gosh, like, I can't even believe I didn't have these before. This is like crazy. The, how abrasive these headlights are on these cars today. Um, you know, the new Audis and stuff. So that's, that's, I hope that answers the question pretty thoroughly. Yeah. I mean, that's great. And it's perfect timing because my wife just, uh, she got lens replacements uh, this past week, and uh, she has for years required multiple glasses, you know, reading glasses and then regular distance and mid-length glasses. And she always had to uh, get prescription blue light blockers, too, because, you know, that's, that's just the, the way she would do it. And it was just it was getting so expensive to, to buy the different prescription glasses that she could shift off of. And... Um, she just got the panoptic lenses. So she's, okay. she's thrilled. She can see close up, she can see medium and she can see far away. So she doesn't require any visual correction. She's like 20, 20 in both eyes now. Wow. And uh, so she's going to be um, finally able to, to get some, uh, some raw optics to. Uh, oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. I would love to get her hooked up. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been hugely informative. Um, I'm sure our listeners have uh, have learned some some gems to uh, to go explore on their own, and certainly to pick up the um, some blue light blockers from Raw Optics. But you know, I have to say, I have seen the results of this. So we monitor biometrics in all of our clients. Um, they're they're wearing the the Garmin Phoenix Sixes, and so we're constantly on a day to day basis. We're getting their stress levels, their resting heart rates, their uh, sleep um, patterns and durations. And um, we're, we see a big change when they start wearing blue light blockers at night, um, the, the stress levels, um, because night is the recovery period. And if they can start to get in, start the recovery period as they're preparing for bed rather than waiting until they lay down and close the eyes, uh, there's, there's definitely a much accelerated um, recovery that they are seeing. Yeah, so. it's, it's so powerful. My, all people I know who wear aura rings, they have, you know, some, even the, the um, one of the chief executives at, at their company and his wife told me they're, they're deep sleep 10 X in, you know, when they started wearing glass, uh, blue blocking glasses. So yeah, 
it's amazing. And uh, yeah, so it's been amazing speaking. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's so great to speak with someone who is a very scientific mind. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just very, it's very uh, stimulating for my brain. And I'm very grateful for it because it's a rare opportunity, you know, in, in today's world, other than when it's actively sought out and made to happen. Well, I say any conversation I walk away with, with greater knowledge of something uh, is a good conversation. And this certainly was a good conversation. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.